So a little bit of a roadmap for what we're going to be doing this morning. Uh, I'm an aspiring theologian. I'm beginning my PhD work at the University of Notre Dame in theology. And so what theologians do is we try and build frameworks. We try and build epistemological frameworks, frameworks for understanding how things fit together. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to build a theological framework around spiritual practice, try and get some scaffolding in place. What is spiritual practice? What is it about? How does it work? How does the spirit at work in spiritual practices and how do we participate in spiritual practices? And then we're going to talk about two, maybe three spiritual practices that I have found particularly influential and shaping and reforming in my own life. We're also going to take a brief look at an amazing clip from the movie Karate Kids, one of my favorite movies as a kid growing up, kind of help contextualize and frame things for us. If I can't articulate it, maybe this will help demonstrate it. So we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. And what I want to say at the outset of this is that this is not meant to be a final word on spiritual practice, by no means. Uh, This is a very rich tradition of spiritual practice within Christianity, and I believe that spiritual practices are like a pilgrimage, a pilgrimage that lasts throughout the remainder of our lives as we, as finite beings, are being conformed to the image of the infinite gods. We have a long, long way to go. There's a great invitation there, a very long journey, a long obedience in the same direction, to use Nietzsche and then Eugene Peterson's phrase. So, this is not meant to be a final word, this is meant to be perhaps an introduction. So, as I mentioned, I've had the chance to write several books. I had the chance to write Under the Overpass about a decade ago, and what that did is that launched me on a speaking circuit around the world, or around North America. But what's been interesting in that, I need to make just a confession to that right now, I feel like I've become a participant in what I've come to call the Christian Carnival. And what I mean by that is that it's very easy to become someone who just gets up on stage and just talks about this thing called faith. It's very easy to become someone who just gets up on stage and performs, who just does their song and dance. I've seen that in my own life, and I've also seen that as I've been out on the Christian speaking circuit, as I've been out as a Christian motivational speaker. Just one quick story on that. I was coming into an airport to fly out to get to a conference that I was going to be speaking at later that afternoon, and it was a very early morning flight, and I got into that waiting room at the airport, sat down, a few other tired people getting ready to board the plane, and into the room walks this guy who's just all swagger, right? Like, he's got his game down. He's talking on the cell phone, and as we're waiting for the plane to begin boarding, the conversation that he's having on his cell phone gets a bit more intense, and then it gets a bit more intense, and we all start boarding the plane, and by the time we're all on the plane, the guy who's been swaggering is now shouting into his phone, just screaming at the top of his lungs. I mean, this is a pretty big scene happening as we're all getting onto this tiny plane. And, you know, the flight attendant comes along and says, sir, you're going to have to shut off your cell phone. We're just about to take off. And he says, yeah, 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 I keep shouting into the cell phone. She goes to the back of the plane and comes back up and says, okay, sir, I'm going to close the main cabin door. You need to turn off your cell phone. It's about time for us to take off. She goes, closes the main cabin door. He's still on the cell phone, still shouting into the cell phone. You know, I'm just kind of thinking to myself, man, this guy, who is this guy? What is this about? It's very clear he's having a conversation with his wife on the, t- on the cell phone. It's just a shouting match. And so then the flight attendant comes back and says, sir, we're ready to go. You have to turn off your cell phone. And this man's last words into the cell phone were, well, Nikki, I'm sorry I've ruined your miserable effing life. And then he slams the phone down in the middle of the aisle of the airplane and it just shatters. It goes shrapnel, right? And the flight attendant and I look at one another and we're thinking, wow. <laughs> well, we're on the plane with this guy for the next hour and a half. Hopefully it doesn't escalate any more than it already has. But he quiets down. I pull my beanie over my head, put in my headphones, try and get a little bit more sleep. We get to our destination. We land. Everybody gets off the plane. I don't really think another thing of this. I'm expecting not to see this guy. It's just another marital dispute, another marital, marital fight. 
I don't think another thing of it until I get to that conference I'm speaking at, right? And I'm sitting in the back of the room and I'm getting ready for my session, which is going to come after the current session. And as I'm sitting in the back of the room, you know, the, the band gets up and plays and then they end and they finish and they introduce a speaker and out onto the stage walks the guy from the plane, the guy who threw his cell phone, the shouter. And he's a very famous Christian comedian. If I said his name, you would know him. I'm not going to say his name because that's not the point. The point is that it was very clear it was just a song and dance. It was very clear it was just a production. It was very clear it was just a facade. I see that in my own life as well. It's just easy to get up and talk about our faith. Not actually live it. Not actually let it be what influences how we live and move and have our being in the world. One of the very brief story at this very large conference, if I said the name again, you would know it. And I was walking into the green room in the back where the speakers and the bands were gathered together. And I walked in and one of the band's managers was absolutely leveling, just chewing out the conference organizer because three contractual realities had been violated. These were the three contractual realities that the band manager was just livid at the conference organizer for. There were these three things. There were more than just blue M&Ms. The water was the wrong temperature. And the leather high back chairs weren't high enough for the band. I walk in on this conversation and it's just a shouting match between the conference organizer and the band manager and the conference organizer is feeling terrible but the band manager is just leveling the conference organizer and then the band storms in and they're livid as well and then they storm out and then five minutes later they're up on stage doing worship. And I'm just kind of thinking to myself, what, what, is th- what is this? What is this? So what I've kind of come to encapsulate this as is this thing called the Christian carnival. That it's about a facade, it's about a performance, it's about a masquerade of faith, but it doesn't really have much substance behind it. Now, this is not just about big conferences and and big names and big lights, all that kind of stuff. I think that we as American Christians, given our culture, which is so consumed with image management, that that bleeds into our faith. And that you and I, if we aren't careful, if we aren't mindful, if we aren't really intentional, what our faith in Christ can become about is more image management with a religious bent than it is actually a life of depth, a life of nourishment, a life of true flourishing. That's where I think spiritual practices begin to intersect our lives as followers of Christ. I'm going to share a bit more about that. See, because I came back from one of these conferences and I was speaking with Danae and I was like, I think I might be done. I think I might be just done with this, all of it. And she said, why don't you go on a retreat? Why don't you go on a retreat? Why don't you get some space, get some time? Listen to what God might be saying. So I went on a retreat to a local monastery. And there I met an incredible spiritual director named Father Solomon. And Father Solomon listens to sort of some of my life and some of my struggles and some of what I was going through. And he said this. He said, why don't you take a year? Why don't you take an intentional year and live into various spiritual practices? Mine, the Christian tradition. Look at it. See what practices might be offered there for your nourishment, for your encouragement, for your formation. Live into those and see if you don't find yourself revitalized, restored at the end of that year. And so I engaged in what I've become, or what I've started to call the sacred year, my sacred year, this intentional year of living into spiritual practices. And so that's where this talk today is coming out of. You sense a bit of my disillusionment and my jadedness and my frustration with being a performer in the Christian carnival and this deep longing for a life of nourishment of faith and of flourishing and the way that spiritual practices intersect that. That's what we're going to be talking about today. So 
As we start off, what I'm going to do is um, ask we go to the next slides, which is a picture of the Orion constellation, okay? So we're going to be working today towards a theological framework, a theological constellation of spiritual practice. So what is a constellation? Well, a constellation is a pattern of relationships between discrete points that forms a recognizable shape. So a constellation, a framework, is a pattern, a relationship of discrete points that forms a recognizable shape. So that's what I mean when I'm talking about building a theological constellation today. We're using that metaphor of a constellation, a relationship, a pattern between discrete points that forms a sort of recognizable shape. And the way that we're going to form this theological constellation is we're going to look a little bit at neurobiology, and then we're going to look at three sections of Paul's various epistles to the Romans, his second one to the church at Corinth and 2 Corinthians, and then in the letter to the church at Philippi to the, in the book of Philippians. So we're going to form a theological constellation, bring these discrete points into relationship and form a recognizable shape to them. The very first point in this theological constellation of spiritual practice is neuroplasticity. Great word, really fun word, right? This is what neuroscientists like to do. They like to create really big words. Neuroplasticity. This is the first point of our theological constellation of spiritual practice. Neuroplasticity is a term that has been coined recently by neuroscientists as a description of the way the human brain works. See, for a very long time, medical science thought that the human brain was static, that it didn't change that neurological pathways were laid down in our brains when we were young, when we were children, when we were learning, when we were going to school, and that those became static. They were hardened. They became concrete. And they wouldn't change as you grew older. Once you laid down those pathways, it was thought, your brain really didn't change. But now, neuroscience has begun to show us that, in fact, our brains are plastic. And what that means, plastic as the category of material, just means that it's malleable. It means these things that are made out of plastic can be shaped into many different forms. Think about all the ways plastic intersects your life. That notion of plasticity means malleability. So neuroplasticity is the neurobiological term for the way our brains actually work, which is that they are constantly being reshaped, reformed. They're not static. Your brain is not static. It can change. Now, neuroscientists discovered this in a really interesting way. London cab drivers have to study for something which is called the knowledge. It's a huge exam. It takes two years to prepare for it, and it's called the knowledge. It's literally a memorization of the entire city of London, or vast majorities of the city of London, so that they know where to go when someone gets into the cab and asks to go to this street, or to that street, or to this little corner. They have both a spatial map, they recognize it in the actual world, but they're also memorizing a cognitive map of where these streets actually lead. It's two years to study for this thing called the knowledge. And what neuroscientists did is they mapped the brains of London cab drivers at the beginning of their time of studying for the knowledge, and then at the end. And what they saw blew open decades worth of assumptions about how the brain works. Because what they saw in those London cab drivers was that their brains were fundamentally changing during the two-year course of their studying for the knowledge. And not just in terms of neuropathways, but whole structures inside of the brain were actually growing and changing because of the process that the cab drivers were going through of studying for this exam. Now, that's a positive implication of neuroplasticity. When we start 
working towards something, when we start studying towards something, when we start moving in a particular trajectory, we actually have the capacity to reshape and reform our brains. Now, in a negative sense, we all know how negative neuroplasticity can work. Take a methamphetamine addict, for example. If you look at a brain scan of someone who's been a methamphetamine addict for a very long time, you'll see whole regions of the brain that have blacked out. There is no neurological activity in those sections of the brain. Neuroplasticity can work in a negative sense as well. We can actually, by our choices, by our decisions, by our habits, by our patterns, corrode and erode how our brains work and how our brains function. So, that's constellation point number one of this theological constellation of spiritual practice. Neuroplasticity. We can actually change the structures of our brain and how our brain functions by what we choose to do. I'm going to put up a quote from N.T. Wright, theologian and biblical scholar N.T. Wright right now, which captures this perfectly. When people consistently make choices about their patterns of behavior, physical changes take place within the brain itself. Significant events in your life, including significant choices you make about how you behave, create new information pathways and patterns within your brain. Okay. Obviously, as I said, this is not meant to be a final word. This is just an introduction. So much more that can and should be said about neuroplasticity and about our neurobiology and how our brains work. But that's constellation point number one in this constellation of spiritual practice. Moving on to constellation point number two, we're going to take a look at Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 12, 2a. Do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but rather be transformed. I want to suggest that Paul is speaking about the process of sanctification here, that when you and I as followers of Jesus become followers of Christ, that begins a process through which we are transformed, that we aren't left where we were when we became followers of Christ, but that that decision to follow after Jesus is the beginning of of a process through which we are transformed. That's really interesting. We're going to look at the Greek word here that is rendered into English as transformed. Transformed is from the Greek metamorphoste. And this is where we get our English word metamorphosis. You all know what metamorphosis is. It's the process by which that creepy crawly little thing becomes something completely different. Yes, there's relationship. Yes, there's DNA that's the same. Yes, there's continuity there. But it also has become something completely different. Paul uses that word metamorphosis day, that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That this is part of what the process of becoming like Christ means, that we are being transformed, that we are being changed, that we are becoming something new, that we're not static, but that following after Christ is a process by which we are transformed. So constellation point number one of this theological constellation of spiritual practice is the neurological fact of neuroplasticity. Our brains change. And then we're coupling it, putting it in relationship with this injunction, with this invitation that the Apostle Paul offers to the church in Rome and also offers to us, therefore, that we are to be transformed. No longer to be conformed to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed. That there's a change that takes place, something akin to metamorphosis that takes place in the life of Christians. 
We're going to move on to constellation point number three. Again, we're moving very quickly this morning. I know that. But constellation point number three, we're looking at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his second letter. 2 Corinthians 6, chapter 1. Paul says this. Excuse me, chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says this. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. We're going to take a very quick look at this word here that is co-workers because co-workers is from the Greek word sin, S-Y-N, and ergo, which is the source, these are the roots, the etymological roots of our English word synergy. Paul suggests that we are to be co-workers with God, that we are to work synergistically with God. This is not just, the Christian life is not just about laying down like a patient on the operating table and letting God do God's work, but rather that we are invited to be co-laborers, to be co-workers with God, that we are to work synergistically with God in what God is up to. Now this is an astonishing invitation, if you think about it, that we as creatures, as ones who have been made, are invited to co-labor, to co-work with God, to be co-laborers with God. So we have, running through the constellation again, neuroplasticity point number one, constellation point number two, the notion that we are invited to metamorphose, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we are not meant to be static, staying where we were, but that there's a process of being conformed to the image of the Son of God, as Paul says elsewhere in Romans. And in this constellation point, number three, that we are invited to work synergistically with God, that we are invited to participate in the process of transformation, that we are invited to co-labor with God as we are being conformed to the image of Christ. Now to kind of bring this whole constellation into picture, into view, into focus, we're going to finish with looking at constellation point number four, which is from Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Paul says this, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So I just want to point something out here, how interesting this is. Usually, let me just give an example here. If you're standing up on stage here, one person standing up on stage here, and I throw a ball and it hits that person in the head, you're not going to blame this person here, Right? In our world, we typically understand actions as having single agents. Actions come from a single source is usually how we understand the way things work. So if I throw a ball and it hits somebody in the head, you don't blame someone else because there isn't dual agency going on there. I'm the one who did the action, therefore I'm responsible for it. What Paul is getting at here is this notion of dual agency that there are two beings at work to make something happen. Continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling for because it is God who is at work in you to will and to fulfill his good purpose. This notion of dual agency is central to the Christian life. And from my perspective, I think we as Protestants especially get caught up in this. We spend a great deal of time being very certain about justification in theological terms. We want to be very careful to make sure that we are not talking about earning our salvation. And this is essential because we cannot earn our salvation any more than we can earn our own creation. 
Paul makes this very clear in his letter to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, he says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is not the result of works. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. But he continues, and then he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me try and simplify that down and put it this way. We're not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. We are saved for the Christian life. We are saved so that we might become more like the image of the Son, that we might be conformed to the image of the Son, that we might be transformed, that we might be metamorphosed into the image of God. That's what we've been created for. That's the telos. That's the end. That's the reason we exist is to be conformed to the image of the Son of God, to be like Christ. Now, a helpful logical distinction might come into play here, and that's the difference between something being sufficient for something else to happen versus something being necessary for something else to happen. This might help us as Protestants when we get caught up in this question of are we earning our own salvation when we talk about spiritual practice? Is that a danger we need to be mindful of, that we need to be careful of? So this distinction between sufficiency, something that is sufficient for something else to happen, versus something that is necessary for something else to happen. Let me give an example of that. So, for example, you need gasoline in your car in order for it to run right, or unless you're driving a hybrid, but for most cases, or unless you're driving diesel, you need some kind of fuel for your car to run, right? Fuel is necessary for your car to run, but fuel does not, is not sufficient for your car to run. Just because you have gas in your car doesn't necessarily mean that your car is going to work, that your car is going to start. There are many other components that come together in order to make your car run. Or a different example, if you prefer a more organic and less mechanical metaphor, water in human life. We need water. Without water, we will not live. But just if you have water, it's not sufficient for human life. There are many other things, oxygen, nutrition, etc., that are necessary for the human life to continue. So when something is necessary, it's included in the process. It's necessary, it's needed for the process to take place, even if it's not sufficient for the process to take place. Let me bring this into the context of salvation and justification and sanctification. Put it as simply as I can. Human activity, human activity is insufficient for our salvation. We do not earn our salvation. We do not work towards our salvation. We do not make our salvation happen. It's a gift of grace. But human activity is necessary in the process of sanctification. This is not something we just lay back and God does to us in a moment. Neuroplasticity, being invited to metamorphosis, being invited to co-labor with God. All these things come together in Paul's injunction, Paul's invitation to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. To work it out, to practice it, to let it not just be an idea, not just a facade, not just a masquerade, but to work it out to let our faith become a way that we live and move and have our being in the world. That's Paul's invitation here, I believe. That's the notion, the idea of spiritual practice, that spiritual practices are necessary in the Christian life. Not because they're sufficient, they aren't. We don't earn God's love, we don't earn our salvation. But we do participate. 
We do synergistically work out our salvation with fear and trembling because for it is God who is at work in us. A quote just from two theologians to help kind of illustrate this. Thomas Aquinas, arguably one of the greatest theologians to have ever lived, lived back in the 13th century. Thomas Aquinas says this. He said, grace does not destroy human nature. Grace perfects human nature. What he means by that is that grace, the grace of God, the saving grace of God empowers us to become who we've been created to be. It empowers us. It doesn't annihilate us and put something else in our place. When Paul says the old is gone, the new is come. It's not that the old has just been annihilated. It's that God is at work to bring us to the fulfillment, the purpose, the perfection for which he has created us. All right, now I know we've been doing a lot of heavy theological lifting. One more quote from a theologian from Dallas Willard who says this about grace and the relationship between grace and spiritual practice and justification and sanctification. Dallas Willard says, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. You and I don't earn our salvation. We don't earn our conformity to the image of God. But that does not mean that we are not meant to run the race with endurance that has been set before us. It does not mean that we are not meant to co-labor with God. The grace of God enables us, it empowers us, it enlivens us to become who we've been created to be, to live in a particular way, to live and move and have our being in the world in a particular way, to practice our faith in particular ways. C.S. Lewis puts it this way when we're talking about this idea of dual agency, of us being at work and God being at work in us. C.S. Lewis says, it is presumably only our presuppositions that make this idea of dual agency appear nonsensical. We profanely assume that divine and human actions exclude one another like actions of two fellow creatures. So that God did this and I did that cannot both be, same, both be true of the same act except in the sense that both contributed a share. C.S. Lewis is getting at this idea of dual agency. This notion that when we do something as followers of Christ, when we act in conformity to the spirit of God who is enabling us, enlivening us, empowering us to be conformed to the image of God, that that's not a contradiction in terms, that that's not us trying to earn our salvation, that's not us trying to earn God's love or God's approval, but rather that's us beginning to act in conformity with what the Spirit is doing. That's us beginning to be metamorphosed into the image of Christ. All right, spiritual practices are intentional and habitual activities whereby we participate synergistically with the redeeming work of God. By becoming, i.e., being transformed or metamorphosing more like Christ. Now, a couple more sections to the definition. They are not a way of earning our salvation, which is impossible, but they are spiritual practices, antidotes to some of the poisonous patterns of our world. And what I love about that Karate Kid clip is he's doing these practices, and he doesn't have any clue why he's doing these practices. They don't make sense until suddenly something happens, and it reframes everything that he's been doing all along, and suddenly it clicks into focus. Suddenly he understands, I'm being conditioned to become a particular kind of person. I'm becoming conditioned to be an excellent, an excellent karate master. That through these practices, which make no sense, in a lot of ways, have very little connection to the actual act of karate, 
I'm being conditioned. I'm being conformed to the image of being a karate master. I think that's how spiritual practices work in a way, that as we participate in them by and through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, we are being conformed and transformed. We are being metamorphosed into the image of Christ, not because we're earning our salvation, but because we are participating synergistically with God in being conformed to the image of the Son. That's what spiritual practices are about. They're about helping us become more who we've been created to be. And I use this term antidote. That spiritual practices function like antidotes to some of the poisonous patterns in our world. And I want to just look very briefly at two spiritual practices which I have found to be hugely transformative during the course of this sacred year, during the course of this intentional engagement with various spiritual practices. One of them is the spiritual practice of attentiveness, of contemplation. If we look at the Latin root for the word contemplate, it means to observe something, to pay attention to it, to be attentive. Now, if you're like me, your life is a blur, right? Our life in the world today, the modern world today, most of our lives are complete blurs. We're going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. Our to-do lists are 100 items long. They never get shorter. We just add more to it. People, things, experiences, prayers, life, God, sorrow, joys, they all just blur because we're moving so fast. I think you've been probably, if like me, you've been on the receiving end of this as well as the giving end of this. What I mean by being on the receiving end of it is you see someone whose eyes are glazed over and they're half listening to you while they're checking email or they're doing something else or they're looking around the room and they're asking half-baked questions because they're in such a frenzy. Or you're in such a frenzy that you're not actually paying attention to what your spouse or your friend or your son or your daughter or your mother or your father are saying to you or your neighbor across the street. You're not actually listening to them because you've got something else to go and do. We're constantly not living in the present. We're constantly living somewhere else. Our mental focus is somewhere else. And when we bring neuroplasticity into this, we've conditioned, I believe, our ability to focus, to be attentive, to pay attention. We've conditioned that capacity out of ourselves. Within the Christian tradition, there's this invitation to contemplation, to being truly attentive to something. Now, I went about this in an interesting kind of way, which is why there's an apple on the front cover of the sacred year. I started contemplating apples for an hour before I ate them. Kind of a weird spiritual practice, right? Wax on, wax off. Makes no sense, right? How long does it take to eat a usual apple? A minute? Two minutes? Three? If you're really taking a long time, try spending an hour on it. I just want to suggest, sometime this week, maybe this afternoon, spend an hour with an apple. It's so hard. (laughs) Because we've conditioned the ability to contemplate and to be attentive right out of ourselves. We're used to consuming things very rapidly, moving on to the next. But this invitation within Christianity, this ancient invitation of contemplation, of being with, of being attentive, It's transformative and antidotal. It's an antidote to our frenzy, to our flurry, to our life-blurring past. We have five senses, right? Five senses, five little windows through which the world can enter into our experience. What if you spent 12 minutes with each of your five senses with that apple? What if you broke it into those five different parts? When you really looked at it for 12 minutes, you listened to it. Try it. You smelled it. You felt it. You tasted it. Now, this sounds interesting. Again, wax on, wax off, paint up, paint down, paint left, paint right. It doesn't make sense. 
But what I began to notice as I did this throughout the sacred year is it began to spill over into other areas. I began to become more attentive and more contemplative in other areas of my life, in prayer. I began to be able to hear things in prayer that I'd never been able to hear before because I'd been moving through it so quickly. I began to be a better listener to my wife, Danae. I began contemplating her listening to her actually instead of just blurring her like I blur everything else in my life. The spiritual practice of attentiveness works like an antidote to our frenzy, to our flurry, to our indifference as modern 21st century human beings. You can contemplate many different things. You can be attentive to many different things. Try it with an apple this week, just a suggestion. Try spending an hour with an apple, then do it again next week. It'll feel really strange the first couple of times, I guarantee it. But it will begin to reshape, to reform you as you engage neuroplasticity, as you begin to engage the spirit of God who's at work to help you actually be, not just do, not just accomplish, not just move ahead, but actually be conformed to the image of the Son of God. We see this in Mark chapter 5 as Jesus is walking along, right? I mean, Jesus and all the apostles and the disciples are moving towards a healing that's supposed to take place in the next town, and a woman comes out of the crowd and grabs a hold of Jesus' cloak, right? And Jesus stops, There's all this motion, all this activity, all this blur going in another direction, and Jesus is willing to stop and to attend to one particular person. He heals her. He looks her in the eyes. He treats her like a human being. He attends to her. And all the apostles, all the disciples, everybody else, the whole crowd around Jesus is expecting him to move on. They're all blurring towards that other objective, and Jesus is willing to stop. You know, this is how this connects for me, and I'm going to try and give you a bit of a window into this, why this, I feel like, is such a necessary project following on after Under the Overpass, because as Sam and I were on the streets, we were constantly sitting on the ground, looking up and watching people pass us by, pretending like we didn't even exist, pretending like we weren't there. I believe that spiritual practices are an antidote to our indifference to the pain and suffering of others. That God works in these practices as we seek to be more attentive, as we seek to notice, to actually see the people who are around us, that that is a core component. First, opening our eyes and beginning to see other people, that that's a core component of what compassion demands. That if we're not willing to even see people, we're never going to be compassionate towards them. And if we're constantly willing to blur past everything in our lives, how are we possibly going to begin to see people? How are we going to notice them? The willingness to stop, to slow down, to be attentive, to acknowledge the people who are around us, to become more like Christ in that, who even though there's all this energy moving in another direction, he's willing to stop and to attend to a particular person. The Spirit of God enabling, empowering, and then working in us to conform us, to transform us, to metamorphose us towards the image of the Son of God. It's the spiritual practice of attentiveness, of being attentive, of becoming more contemplative. One other spiritual practice, and this is perhaps a little bit controversial, but the spiritual practice of Sabbath-keeping, of taking one day in the week to stop, to rest, 
Now, one quick story to kind of get at this. So, Danae and I are runners. We run, we've run half marathons, marathons, we run quite a bit. And I went for a run in Vancouver when we were living up in Vancouver, British Columbia. And there were some clouds that had gathered over the mountains, but I thought I had enough time to go for my run and come back. And I was midway through my run, and it started to just absolutely pour. I mean, pour the way that it can only pour in the Pacific Northwest, right? Like, just the streets are flooding, the sidewalks are flooding, it's just dumping. And I'm out, and my body's heated up, and it's pouring rain, and I'm getting almost like, you know, body starts to go into a weird temperature phase because I'm hot, but it's really cold rain, and I'm starting to kind of just feel really strange, really weird, and then I take a wrong turn, and I don't know where I am, and I am getting lost in a city that I thought I knew, and it's pouring down rain, and I'm running, and I'm exhausted, and I'm tired, and I'm starting to shake, and I'm cold, and I'm hot, and all these just strange, frenetic activity, being lost, and I finally find my way back home, and I come in out of the storm, and I'm home, and that is the best analogy I've been able to find for what Sabbath keeping has become for Danae and I. We run through our weeks, we're exhausted, we're wearied, there's more than we can ever get done, we're tired, we're frenetic, and we come to the end of the week and Sabbath is like coming in out of the storm. Marva Dawn, a brilliant theologian and writer, has a book on Sabbath, and the subtitle of the book is a sort of structure for what she believes Sabbath is about. She says that Sabbath is about ceasing, about resting, about feasting, and about embracing. Sabbath is not about keeping some legalistic commandment. Sabbath is about coming in out of the storm. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel suggests that in Sabbath, the texture of time changes. So Danae and I have begun to seek to practice Sabbath-keeping on a regular, regular, habitual basis as an antidote to our frenzy to our consumerism, to our blurring of the world as it flows past. And what do I mean by that? Let's get really concrete. We take off our wristwatches, these manacles by which we mince our minutes, by which we quantify our productivity, quantify our effectiveness, quantify our efficiency. We take them off. We sleep in. We make a feast. We invite friends over. We enjoy a good meal together. We leave the dishes until tomorrow. Marva Dawn speaks about Sabbath keeping as doing nothing obligatory because we are all crushed under obligations during the rest of our weeks. Sabbath is a time to cease, to rest, to feast, to embrace, to go for a long walk, to make a good meal, to be with people you love. Nothing obligatory. It's a celebration, a weekly reminder that we were created for the joy that God is inviting us into. So, two very brief spiritual practices. This idea of becoming more attentive, of practicing attentiveness, of waxing on and waxing off, taking an hour to eat an apple, putting your cell phone down when you're having a conversation with someone, turning it off, putting it away. This spiritual practice of Sabbath keeping, of having 24 hours set aside to cease the work and the labors that we have most of the rest of the time, to embrace those whom we love and who are close to us, to rest, to sleep in, to be regenerated a little bit, cease, rest, feast, and embrace. Spiritual practices work like antidotes to some of the poisonous and toxic realities of the world in which we live. 
They are not ways by which we force God to love us. They are not ways by which we earn our salvation or we earn God's love. Rather, spiritual practices are ways that we synergistically participate with God in the process of sanctification, in the process of being transformed into the image of Christ. Let me conclude with this. I believe that one of the most dangerous and pernicious ideas that has ever crept into Christianity is that Christianity is just belief that it's just cognitive agreement with a list of doctrines. What Christianity is about, I believe, is about living, moving, and having our being in the world in a particular way. It's following after this Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. It's not just about cognitively assenting to something. It's about living in a particular way because of who Christ is, what he has done, and what the Spirit of God is at work to do in us and through us. We are not meant to merely talk this thing called faith. We're meant to live it. It's not meant to be a masquerade. It's not meant to be a facade. It's not meant to be a show. It's meant to be a way of living and moving and having our being in the world so that we become more like this Jesus, so that we become transformed, metamorphosed into the image of the Savior. Bow your heads with me if you would, please. Let's close in prayer. Spirit of the living God, the one who moves in us and empowers us and enlivens us to be conformed to the image of the Son. Be with us, we pray, as we, as men and women of faith, seek to live lives worthy of the name Christian, that we, as we seek to live lives that are marked by the practices, that are marked by the fruit of the Spirit, that are marked as being conformed to the image of the Son of God. Would you be with us, we pray. Would you empower us and enable us? Would you bring us deeply into this life of sanctification, this life of spiritual practice by which we are conformed to you? And Lord, we confess the ways, the many, many ways in which it's so easy to make our faith just a facade. I pray that you would bring us into true depth, true nourishment, and true life, that you would conform us to life in all its fullness, which is found in you. Pray all of this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.